Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska is produced with support from the University of Alaska Fairbanks Communication and Journalism Department. UAF Kojo, tell great stories. In this episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. When we hit the ground, he turned around, looked at me, said, you okay? And I'd smacked my face on the bar of the seat in front of me and lost my glasses. And all the gear behind me had come over my shoulders and was kind of all around my legs. But I said, yeah, I'm fine. Um, no problem. He says, I've made better landings. <laughs> I said, yeah. And all of a sudden, the plane just goes whoop and burst into flames. Scott Waterman proves any landing you can walk away from maybe isn't that good of a landing. And after hours of walking lost in the snowy woods, a teenage Josh Busby decides to settle in for what could have been the last nap of his life. This time, I'm definitely with the fact that, yeah, this is the same trail. I've crossed my path about three times now. I'm super beat emotionally, so we've been traveling out in the snow for six hours. I'm done. I just decided, you know what? That's a good tree looking over there. I'm just gonna climb underneath that and just take a little break. And so I did. Walk for your life. Coming up next on Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, I'm Rob Prince. Before we get started with today's show, I want to thank everyone who came out to our March 9th show here in Fairbanks. We had a big, awesome crowd, and the show was just fantastic. We had women jumping around on kanga shoes, including me. A dog took my sock off. The Papa Anupiak dancers shared their traditional Alaska native dancing and drumming. And we learned about the mystery of the Delta Hand. You really had to be there. We'll be sharing some of the stories from that show in the future on this program and our podcast. If you want to make sure not to miss our next show in November, there's more information at darkwaternights.com. Okay, on to today's show. I still pay attention to those pre-flight emergency briefings when I'm flying. I think it has more to do with the fact that as a college professor, I know how it feels to have many people ignore you while you're talking. Scott Waterman learned firsthand that it can be good to review at least some of the basics of those procedures before you fly, because some of that stuff does not come naturally to us when we discover we need to get out of an airplane extremely quickly. He shared this story at our November 2018 live event in Fairbanks. Here's Scott Waterman. I walked outside in the village of Huslia on October 23, 1988. The temperature was two degrees below zero. I'd had a good night's sleep. The night before, I had done the first ever radio broadcast in Huslia. I was the general manager at KIYU Radio in Galena. And I had gone over to Huslia to do our public radio fundraiser. And I had a great night. I had Stephen and Catherine Atla um, come in and talk. And I had a little area in the community hall set up. And I had my microphone set up. And I had a telephone line back to the radio station. And I had people coming up. And they were sitting right under the safety, safety poster that said, if your clothes ever catch fire, stop, drop, and roll. That's important for later. So I went outside this morning, and I walked around. Crisp fall day, really nice day. And I stayed out for a few minutes. Blue sky, my nose hairs started to freeze together. I knew it was slightly below zero. Went back inside to Wilson and Eleanor Sam's house, and they served me a great moose stew breakfast with Carol and Roger Huntington. We talked for a good while, and Roger was going to take me over to Melosi Hot Springs. We were going to stop and meet someone who I had talked to frequently on the air, but never met. So we went down to the Cub, and we pulled the wing covers off, got the Red Dragon out, 
heated the engine a little bit. Roger did his pre-flight. We loaded all our gear in behind the rear seat. I climbed into the back seat. He gets in, fires it up. We take off across Big Lake from Huslia um, on, on the ice. And we clear the trees on the far side. And we're only a couple of minutes out. And all of a sudden, Roger goes into this steep bank turn. I hear him say something. Bear. What was that? Bear. I can't hear a thing over the noise of the engine and everything else. We're in a steep bank turn. He's pointing down. And I'm looking out, trying to figure out where where this bear is and I don't see anything and we're in the steep bank turn going around I'm looking down all of a sudden the airplane shakes a little bit and I'm not quite sure what's going on I'm looking for the bear and when I look up I see trees in the windshield I didn't think that was how this was supposed to go we hit the trees um, he had been trying to climb in a real steep climb had the airplane belly up and that that did a lot of good because it kind of levered us into the trees and and the trees levered us down to the ground when we hit the ground he turned around and looked at me and said you okay and i'd smacked my face on the bar of the seat in front of me and lost my glasses and all the gear behind me had come over my shoulders and was kind of all around my legs but i said yeah i'm fine um no problem he says i've made better landings <laughs> i said yeah and all of a sudden the plane just goes and burst into flames I still got my seatbelt on. There's a tree, and you know a Super Cub door opens to the top and to the bottom on the right side of the airplane. And I reached over, and I pulled the handle, and I tried to open it, but there was a tree right across the outside of the door, and we couldn't open the door. I began to panic a little bit. There was an emergency locator transmitter located right over my head. I'd worked on airplanes for a few years before that, and I tried to get it off. Um, but it wouldn't come off, so I just smacked it as hard as I could, hoping that it would send out a signal. Then I realized if we couldn't get out the door, the window is my only other way out, so I took my elbow and I smashed the window out on the left side, and I reached out and I grabbed the strut, and I pulled, and my seatbelt was still holding me in the seat. So i holding onto the strut, I'm trying to pull the seatbelt with my other hand. You know those flight attendants when they tell you, the seatbelt in these aircraft may not be like the ones in your car, this is true. Um, and I finally realized that I had to let go of the strut with my left hand and pull it that way to get out of the seat. Once I was clear of the seatbelt, I dragged myself out with the strut and sort of fell on the ground, rolled off. And I was sure, because this is always what happens in the movies, the airplane's going to explode, right? So I run, but then that safety poster kicks in. Your clothes are on fire and my arm is blazing. Um, and I stop, drop, and roll. Well, I kind of compromised because I didn't want to stop, drop, and roll too close to the airplane. And I rolled away once I could clear the wing. And I kept rolling and rolling and rolling as far as I could. And re realizing my arm had been extinguished, which was a good thing, I got up and I called for Roger. Now, I'd lost my glasses, so I'm not seeing very well. I'm nearly blind without them. And I called Roger. No answer. I can hear the airplane crackling, and I can smell the resins and all this other stuff just burning. Roger! No answer. I took a deep breath, and I ran back in under the wing. I didn't want to breathe any of that stuff, and I ran back in under the wing, and I looked into the cockpit, and he wasn't there. 
and my arm caught fire again. And I repeated my process, and I ran back out, and I dropped, and I rolled, and this time I had a really sharp pain in my back, and I found a little patch of snow, and I was just lying on my back, kind of wiggling into the snow to extinguish it. Got that done. Got up, called Roger again, didn't see him. I went around the front of the airplane. He's standing on the other side doing the exact same thing I was. He had thought I was still in the plane, tried to go in underneath, couldn't get there. His clothes are all on fire. In fact, he had um, a nylon jacket. And I advise you, if you're flying in bush aircraft in rural Alaska, do not wear nylon, ever. Just don't. His nylon had begun to melt onto him, and he just grabbed everything and pulled it off over his head. And so he's standing there with just his pants and his boots on, and he's naked from the waist up, and it's two degrees below zero. I look at him, and he comes, and he gives me the biggest bear hug. We never did see the bear, but I got a bear hug out of the deal. Um, he gives me a big bear hug, and he goes, oh, I'm so glad to see you. I don't know how. I, I, didn't, I didn't know how you were going to get out. And I said, how did you get out? He says, I think I went through the V-bars. He's bigger than I am. I don't know how he got out. He doesn't to this day know how he got out but um, he thinks he went through the windscreen. Anyway, we stand there and we look, and I, I had what was left of my jacket. Uh, the arm was burned, there was a big hole in the back, um, but he didn't have anything, so I had a long sleeve shirt and a long sleeve T-shirt. I gave him the jacket, and he was able to put that on, at least zip up the front, have something over his shoulders. And we looked at the aircraft and realized that there wasn't anything that we were gonna accomplish here. And I said, how far from town are we? He says, oh, not too far, five or six miles maybe. Turned out it was seven. But, um, so we started walking. And uh, as we're walking along, we walked along the river a little ways. And he says, uh, we should probably sing a little bit. So uh, we started singing Amazing Grace and a couple of other gospel songs that I didn't really know the words. And he knew some of the words, but not as many as he thought he did. And so... We, we sang for a little while, and his throat was starting to get a little hoarse, and he said, um, uh, I'm getting cold. Maybe we should make a fire. Well, I had the only piece of survival gear that had survived the burn. We had all, everything was in the back, and it had all fallen around my feet and whatnot, and still in the aircraft, along with the $800 that we had raised in cash the night before. Rifles, radios, all that stuff was in the aircraft. So the only piece of survival gear we had left was my Zippo lighter, because I smoked at the time. I haven't smoked since they put me out. Um, so the uh, Zippo lighter got us a fire going, and we warmed up around that for a little bit and continued our walk back to Huslia. We did another fire a few minutes, uh, maybe a half an hour later. Overall, it took us about um, just about two and a half hours to walk back. Along the way, at one point, he said it was a Sunday. He said, uh, you know, we might think about maybe going into Fairbanks and getting some, somebody to look at us Monday or Tuesday. Well, we got back to Huslia, and he wasn't moving quite as well. In fact, his eyes had swelled shut, and he was holding on to my left arm and guiding me and telling me where to go. He had grown up in that area, and he said, well, when we come around the uh, bottom of this lake, look for two big spruce trees and a big rock between them. There will be a little trail, that kind of direction. Got us back to, to the lake, and then the last, and when we got near the edge of the lake, he sent me on ahead. When we got back, I got back to the, um, to the shore where Wilson and Eleanor's house was, 
there were two trails going up to it. I went up the left trail and I opened the door. I knocked real quick, opened the door and walked in. And Carol Huntington, who had worked with me for about eight or nine months at KIYU, had, she just looked and said, who are you? Can I help you? She didn't recognize me because my hair had all burned off, my beard was gone, and um, my face apparently had um, been burned a little bit. Um, so I said, Roger's hurt, he's out just across the lake. Wilson, Eleanor, and Carol all ran out, fired up a snow machine and a four-wheeler, went running across the lake. I have this weird memory for phone numbers, and I'd, I had called a bunch of people to set this uh, community event up the night before, and I called Rose Ambrose, who was the physician's assistant in Huslia. She came over with Marty Beifeld and a couple of other people. Um, and I had, while I was waiting for her, I had called Gary Guy at Friendship Air Service. And he said there was a flight inbound, but he couldn't raise them on radio because they were below the uh, level. So if somebody went out to the airport and stopped him, uh, they'd give us a flight into Fairbanks. Rose sent. I think it was her nephew or somebody out, he grabbed a three-wheeler and actually stopped the plane from taking off as it was starting its takeoff roll. Um, the pilot thought, here's a crazy kid on a three-wheeler, but when he found out what was going on, they turned the plane around, uh, got us out to the airport. Now, I should say that um, my time in Galena had been interesting, but it wasn't the job that I had really wanted. I had just the week before been trying to think um, of how I could get out before my contract was up. Um, and I'd been on the phone with a friend of mine in Wasilla, and I said, you know, I signed this contract, I'm committed, but I'd, I'd love to find some way to get out, you know, without losing face. Um, so I, I, I get on the plane with uh, Roger and Carol and, and Rose Ambrose, and they fly us into Fairbanks. Now, when we got to the airport out here, um, we had to come right over here to the hospital right behind us, and, uh, and they had two ambulances waiting for us. And as we start down uh, airport way, we get part of the way down, and all of a sudden, both ambulances pull over to the side. It turns out that Roger's throat began to swell and shut, and he needed an emergency tracheotomy. And the only person on either of the two crews that was qualified to do it was the guy that was taking care of me. So they had to change attendance, and he had to do an emergency tracheotomy out on Airport Way somewhere. Um, when we finally got to the hospital, we didn't think we were hurt that bad. I was four days in intensive care, 25 days in the hospital with third degree burns over 11% of my body, including all of my face was gone. Um, Roger had third degree burns over 50% of his body and had 26 skin graft operations. He was 180 days at Fairbanks Memorial here. Um, to this today, he's flying his mall. Um, he's got a Bible camp up on the um, near Ruby, and and is still doing really well. I did get out of Galena um, without, but I didn't get out without losing face. Thank you, Scott Waterman. He shared that story at our November 2018 live event in Fairbanks. This is Dark Winter Nights: True Stories from Alaska. The Walk for Your Life episode, I'm Rob Prince. Josh Busby was a typical invincible teenager growing up in Alaska until he discovered he wasn't 
in several ways. He shared this story at our November 2018 live event in Fairbanks. Here's Josh Busby. All right, something you should know about me is I was born in Fairbanks, lived in Salta, grew up in Salta. Don't hold it against me or for me. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I grew up really close to just south of Harding Lake. And uh, growing up there, of course, you're, you're, uh, anybody who's within like five miles is your next door neighbor, right? And we had, we had the neighbors growing up, Art and Ann Ward and their kids. Um, they were you know, my, my mom and dad's age. And we grew up with them, and they were, they were awesome people, and they were fun to be around. And, um, except for when I started turning into a punk kid about age 13. You guys can relate. That happens. Um, there was one time I remember I was, um, it was midsummer, and I was, I was about 13 years old. And Art, or no, Ann called up and said, hey, um, I need you to come down here and pick up your sister because she's done doing some stuff. And my sister was, I don't know, 9 or 10 or something and needed to come back up back to the house and I was the only one there because I had important stuff to do like holding down a couch. I was really into that and I thought this was an imposition on me to actually have to go do it and I let her know that and had some words for her about you're not my mom you can't tell me what to do and being a sweet lady that kind of offended her and she I think she hung up crying and and um, little did I know that wasn't going to be a good sign for me because I've hung up the phone thinking I had won right. Yeah. I'm going to go back doing my important stuff, which is holding down this couch. I didn't really feel super good about it, but I knew I had won. 20 minutes later, in walks Art, Anne's husband. And uh, in the Bible, there's a passage that says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. <laughs> it is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of Art Ward when you've disrespected Anne Ward. Um, and I did. And he, he was a, he was a felt man. He grabbed me. I'm, I'm, I was only maybe two inches shorter than I am now and probably 20 pounds lighter. And he picked me up out of the chair, put a hole in my shirt and shook me. And by the end of that, I was not winning anymore. I was going down to pick up my little sister. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> Still not feeling super good about it because, you know, punk doesn't wear off real quick. Um, and... Fast forward like one, about a year later, I and my brother, Conan, that's his real name. He's sitting right there. I can still see him. <laughs> we were staying with my dad because my, my mom and dad had split apart, but my mom lived just like three miles down the road from where my dad was. <clears throat> we figured, I figured, I don't know if he agreed, but I roped him into it anyway, that making a trail that went from my house to my mom's, from, from my dad's house to my mom's house would be a great idea because you could go due west, Go, cut through a sea of black spruce, hit the Vol Valdez Trail, hang a left, and then six miles later you could be to my mom's house. You know, great, that makes sense. Six miles, three miles. It works out. It's good math. Um, so we decided to do it. We get all ready. We're gonna, we got the little, uh, you know, every, every uh, young man's dream is an Elan, little cylinder banger engine. We're gonna get on the snowmobile and we're gonna cut across there. We get our stuff on. I think it, I think it was in, in December or something. Um, we've gone back and forth about the actual date, but I'm telling the story so you have to believe it. Um, and so we get going and it's not, it's like maybe quarter, half a mile. We get on the snowmobile and we're driving and we get, everything's too, it's, it's way too thick. You can't go through that stuff with a, four, with a snow machine or anything. But we did have, you know, we had to, we were prepared because we had a compass, right? We had this, you know, those ones where they got like the little slidey thing and you can adjust the declination and you can shoot and where you're going. That's the one we didn't have. <laughs> <sighs> 
we had this great compass. Um, it looked like a cross between an ashtray and a bookend. And it was huge in brass, and you could, luckily you could spin the top off of it so it wasn't an anchor. But we had that, and the little dial is maybe about the size of a quarter. So about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we start heading off. We get a little ways down there, and then we decide, okay, we've got to abandon the snow machine. We'll start walking. I figure it's about two miles. It's, yeah, we're hardy Alaskans. We, don't, we can do this. So we start walking off. I'm checking the little compass, and I'm breaking trail. Snow's about knee-deep or so. It wasn't too bad. Uh, pretty warm out. We're going along, going along, going along. And then, <clears throat> well, it's not as light out anymore. It's starting to get a little dark out here. And we keep walking, and, you know, after a while, it's dark enough that that little compass, might as well check that thing, because it ain't doing me any good. And black spruce forest that it is is covered in snow, and you can't see the sky, and, you know, this idea that I'm going to navigate by the stars, well, that ain't working out for me either. But, you know, no other really good idea came to me either, so we just kept walking, and kept going, and kept going, and then after a while, I'm thinking we must be making time. We must be making some good progress. We're getting close, right? And then we, we come around like a, a clump of trees and, hey, there's a trail. It's right there. Somebody's been here before. We must be close to it now. This is great. Cool. So, yeah, but it's going the wrong direction. Okay, well, we'll go this way and we'll get back on track. And so we'll keep going, keep going, keep going. And then, hey, there's a trail here. We must, wait a second. Okay, that's kind of suspicious now. Maybe we'll try this other direction. I started feeling like Winnie the Pooh when Rabbit and Piglet are trying to lose Tigger in the 100-acre wood, and they keep coming back to the same sand pit over and over again. It's like, this is starting to dawn on me that this is what's happening. What doesn't dawn on me is like, hey, we could just go back. You know, that would be, that'd be all right, right? <laughs> you know? So we're going around, going around. About the third time this happens, I'm deciding I get, I'm getting kind of cold. Um, I don't think I'm thinking real super straight and super good. Little did I know about that time, it was probably the, the weather that, that night, had, you know, it started at 20 degrees. And by the end of this whole adventure, it's, it's like minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit. A cold front or something had moved in and the, plump, the temperature just absolutely plummeted. I didn't really feel it. You know, I've kind of felt at times like getting a little bit cold, but I wasn't cold then. I was getting, getting tired, but I wasn't really cold. You know, later in my education, I learned that, yeah, that's about your first really good sign that you're going hypothermic. Um, of course, you don't think about that because, you know, you're, uh, you're not thinking. You're not thinking right. So come back on the trail. This time, I'm definitely with the fact that, yeah, this is the same trail. I've crossed my path about three times now. I'm super beat emotionally, and I've been breaking trail now for, so this is probably 8, 9 o'clock at night, maybe even 10 by this, this point. So we've been traveling out in the snow for six hours, and I've been break, breaking trail that entire way. I'm done. I just decided, you know what? That's a good tree looking over there. I'm just going to climb underneath that and just take a little break. And so I did. I went, climbed underneath this tree, curled up. Like I said, I didn't feel cold. Um, it's kind of like that. You know, when, you're, uh, when you've skipped lunch and you're to about the point where, you know, if you, you've eaten breakfast, you don't have lunch at noon, about 2 o'clock, the hunger pangs go away. And you say, your body's just telling you, like, yeah, well, you're an idiot. You're not going to eat, so why be hungry? Um, <laughs> same with this. You're, you're cold. You're an idiot. We'll just tell you you're warm. It'll work out. Um, so I was feeling good, feeling good, but not clear, not 
not really contemplating anything. Like I said, I didn't think, you know, going back to the to the house was a good idea. Didn't even really occur to me that that was even possible. I thought we were too far along to actually make a turnaround and go back. I didn't think of making a fire. I didn't think about really anything. I was, all I could really think about was I had this crazy ACDC headbanger rock and roll song going over and over and over in my head, and I still can't remember all the words to it. So I crawl up under the tree, and I think I fell asleep. My brother Conan, well, he decided this is not a good plan. And uh, talking with him about him later, he decides, he said he got a burst of energy about this point in time, re- realizing that this is the same trail. I said, well, I'm going to head back to the house, or I'm going to head somewhere. He said he heard, could hear dogs barking in the background. So he started, he thought it was like one of our neighbors growing up. So he started running, and Conan can run. And so he started running to it, and then, he'd, then they'd go back, and then he'd hear him again, and he'd start running. Well, it turns out those are the uh, cars on the highway going by. So we had not made it that far. And, <laughs> and then he runs into the snow machine. He's like, hey, cool. And 13, and he's, he fires right up for him. And, and then, you know, at 20 below, a uh, snowmobile just starting up for you is like kind of unheard of. And he gets on it, starts zipping back to, back to the house. About this time, too, or a little bit before this, my dad has decided this, something's gone wrong, right? They're not back here. They're not at their mom's house. They got to be somewhere in between. Deductive reasoning. So he starts calling and looking for help. So who does he call? He calls Art Ward. And he and Art come. And they're coming down the trail. They know they can follow where we've been. And they meet Conan on the, on the snowmobile halfway. Conan walks the rest of the way back. They take the snow machine and come looking for me. And they get from Conan that, yeah, uh, he's that way under a tree. Uh, <laughs> Pretty good directions, right? <laughs> what can go wrong? And I remember about that time, they, they're coming up, and I, can, I hear something yelling, but I'm not responding to anything at all. I can, I can hear something, and then Art gets to me first, and he reaches down and grabs me and picks me up. And he's yelling at me. He's like, Josh, Josh. And I'm, I'm like, and I'm like a, you know, waking up from a dream, in which I'm in a tunnel that's a train track, and there's like a little point of light way out the back, and I kind of like, eh, what? And I'm not, I, I remember just being annoyed. I was like, dude, I'm asleep. I'm good. Just leave me alone. And, well, he didn't, so. <laughs> so he hauls me back, pulls me back over to where my dad is on the snow machine. They put me on the snow machine and then take me back to the house. Salt to Rescue has been called at this time, and they're, they're, they're there waiting for us uh, at the house. And they're asking, yeah, yeah, he's, he's hypothermic. Um, he's, they take your temperature, and when you're cold and like that, and you're not putting a thermometer in your teeth, it's uh, going somewhere else. <laughs> I didn't care. <laughs> um, but I was, I was at least two degrees below what your normal body temperature likes to hover at, I eventually get warmed up, right? And, you know, things go back to normal. Except I have, I had, at that point, I had frostbite, frostbite from my knees down to where the top of my boots were at, which was really cool, man. It, like, frozen skin is, is pretty neat. It all cracks and peels, and it's, you. <laughs> um, but other than that, it's normal. Except for now, you know, I'm a 14-year-old kid that knows that you can die right? Before then, it never crossed my mind. I never thought, never occurred to me that out there I might die. 
And that kind of changed my um, changed my viewpoint on things for a little bit. Didn't take effect real soon. I'm still a young punk kid at this time, right? Don't get me wrong. But the main reason that I kind of wanted to deliver this story uh, at this point in time, though, is because uh, earlier this summer, um, June 24th, uh, Art and Ann Ward, Art was a bush pilot and flew around, and he had a cabin in McCarthy, and he and Ann were on their way out there. And still don't know exactly what happened, but the short of the matter is that they crashed uh, in the flat southeast of Delta and died. And so I just, you know, I think about them. I think about when we used to growing up with them and all the good times, you know, that we've had with them. And being in, being in with Art and Ann, you always knew that you were, you were welcome, you were well taken care of, you were in good hands when you were with those people. And now they're in the greatest hands of all. So, thank you. Josh Busby. Thank you for listening to Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, the Walk for Your Life episode. Today's show was edited by myself, Rob Prince. Audio recording of our stories by John Huff of Alaska Universal Productions. Story consultation by Lori Neufeld. We need your true stories from Alaska. You can submit them at darkwinternights.com. Remember, these are the stories we tell up here in Alaska on Dark Winter Nights. I'm Rob Prince. <laughs>